Welcome to Hub & Flow, a podcast produced by Natural Gas Intelligence. On a mission to provide transparency to the natural gas market, Hub & Flow focuses on key fundamentals driving the price of natural gas and LNG in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Natural Gas Intelligence, or NGI, is a subscription-based price reporting agency, which means we provide trusted and independent natural gas pricing and news for the North American market. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of NGI's Hub & Flow podcast. I'm Jacob Dick, and I'm an associate editor of LNG, helping bring our clients daily LNG market coverage with our LNG Insight publication. Today, I'm happy to welcome Ira Joseph to the podcast. Ira is uh, currently an adjunct senior research scholar with Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy. Hey, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Jacob. This is exciting. I love the name Hub and Flow. It's a great title. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. And today we're going to explore possible risk for global LNG prices, especially as markets continue to adjust from last year's volatility. But first, Ira, I think you're you're probably a, a pretty well-known guy. But since this is your inaugural Hub and Flow episode, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about your, your background and what you've been doing since you've joined CGEP. Sure. I joined CGEP as, a, as a, what's called a global fellow in October of last year. Prior to that, I had been at uh, S&P Global for six years, where in different parts, I was the head of gas and power research and then gas head of the gas, power, coal, and uranium price assessments. <laughs> while I was there. The reason I at S- was at S&P Global is, is that it, it, S&P Global acquired Pirate Energy Group, where I, where I was for many, many years. And prior to that, like you, Jacob, I, I started out as a journalist back in 1989 for Petroleum Intelligence Weekly under the watchful eyes of uh, Wanda Jablonski and Ed Morse. So I've been started out in the oil market, but uh, mostly been in the gas and LNG market since about the early 90s. And uh, I'm glad you're all listening in and I'm glad you're interested and we can talk as much about LNG as you want. Gotcha. Um, and I, I got to say, you're one of those those people that, that I follow that I always love to see what you're talking about, not necessarily because oh, I think it's going to generate a story, because you're always talking about things that I haven't thought about before. <laughs> and, oh, and thank you. I always thank feel like I, I learned something. Anybody, anybody who's listening here, please follow me on Twitter. I promise you'll <laughs> like it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So now, uh, you know, Europe's rush to replace uh, Russian gas volumes last year helped turn global energy markets on their head. I think that's that's something that is probably a lead to several stories I've had to write in the last couple of months. But after you know, following record price spikes and the numerous deals and negotiations and ups and downs that seem to happen every day after February last year, the winter has been quiet, and and I've felt you know myself sometimes slipping and thinking maybe this energy crisis thing is is went away. But Ira, could you give us some perspective about why European and Asian prices have slipped through the winter and how we should place that in context with historical prices? Yeah, well, they have slipped. I mean, we're talking outside the U.S. here first. They have slipped to around thirteen dollars today per million BTU in Europe and Asia. $13 per million BTU is still a really, really high price. So I think there's relief that there's no longer $50 gas prices, but $13 is, is nothing to sneeze at. It is, it is a high price. It really inhibits demand growth or, it, or even inhibits you know, a return to demand prior to when we spike to these kind of numbers. 
So, you know, we have to be very careful to sort of think about, you know, we're, we're through the other side. There's certainly, there's, there's a little bit, I would say, in Europe of sort of patting on the back about that right now that, that may be a little bit overstated, but we can go through a little bit. There's still, the, the fundamental problem still remains, and it may not be a 12-month-a-year problem, but it's definitely, you know, a peak winter demand problem, which is to say that Europe or the world, I should say, does not have enough gas for for peak demand during peak demand periods, which are basically the fourth and the first quarter of the year. And while things look soft now with Henry Hub down to two bucks and TTF dropping to 13, and then, you know, with a lot of downward pressure on that, you know, we are are by no means out of the woods here on on, on what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've kind of had this semantic discussion with, with people before. Sometimes, you know, people get it rankled at the term uh, mild winter because then they, they like to point out, well, and, and the mild winter has helped Europe, but also so have gas consumption cuts. And then other people like to argue that maybe those cuts haven't been as, as extreme as some people point out, I guess, namely because there hasn't been blackouts in, in Western Europe. Um, how do you kind of square that that circle about how you know Europe has, has been able to meet demand and what that actually means for the global gas market? Well, yeah, I mean, a mild winter certainly helped there and it helped, you know, in, in Asia as well. But high, high prices are really what, what, you know, also did a did a real number on demand too. I mean, we're coming out of winter with the high, in Europe, at least with the highest storage level I, I ever remember seeing. And it's about 40 billion cubic meters higher than it was the year, year before. So all those things happened. And we had a huge diversion of LNG from Asia, particularly from China to the European market for a couple of core reasons. One was COVID-related issues that have gone well over. Two is sort of economic issues related to COVID. But three, which I still think is the most important one, is that basically Chinese buyers saw an opportunity to make a lot of upside, uh, hundreds of millions, if not billions, up, upside diverting cargoes to Europe. So they did it. And that was a huge factor is that is that Europe, at least for last winter, was able to buy it by its way out of a crisis. And that will probably be true next winter as well, if, if necessary. But but I think a lot of the market was sleeping or not sleeping, but, you know, not really understanding how much money was to be made from diverting cargoes. And, and as a result, you know, the cargoes were diverted and, and Europe had more gas than it needed. At one point, I remember looking at the price assessments that LNG was trading probably at a $10 per million BTU discount in Northwest Europe relative to TTF. I mean, that's how sort of crowded it, got, it, it had gotten at, at one point. And that spreads probably back to a dollar or something like that now, where it probably is sort of the, the long-term area of where it should we in terms of those two prices. But again, coming out of European winter with, with you know, record high storage. But on the other side, the problem doesn't go away. It doesn't matter. You know, I can paint you a scenario where gas storage is going to fill up by the first week of August in, in Europe, and I can paint you a scenario where it's going to fill up on time at November 1st to sort of peak levels. Either way, you can't be more full than full. And after it's full, Europe has to balance on importing incremental gas, whether that's Norwegian pipeline gas, whether that's LNG, whether that's from Algeria. Europe cannot balance based on domestic gas production plus storage withdrawals. It always has to have the imports, and that's why the risk remains and the risk will continue until either the Russia issue gets resolved in, in one way or another, or there's more supp- a significantly more supply coming to the market. Mm-hmm. And do you think that 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 shift from you know Europe embracing the, the spot market and trying to fill storage to 
what might become a long-term supply relationship with exporters. Do you think that those questions have been answered at this point, or is there still a lot of, of questions about, or I guess we're not really seeing the contracts that we, we thought we would see? Yeah, so the big question, uh, a big question right now is when, if and when Europe will sign up more long-term contracts. And they've certainly signed up their share of, I mean, if not European end users, European oil and gas companies like Total and Shell are, are signing up 10-year deals that you know are ranging between 750,000 tons to you know, 1 to 1. 1.5 million tons a year. So some deals have been done, but this sort of blanket idea of Europe, you know, buying another 50 million tons of a long-term contract, there has def- definitely been some reluctance to do that, you know, at this point. But I think that's for several reasons. One is because while the European Union certainly has sort of shown a, a, a much more positive light on natural gas than maybe it would have prior to the Russian invasion in terms of the energy transition, people are concerned in Europe and the buyers are concerned about, you know, the, the friendliness towards natural gas as part of the energy supply mix on a long-term basis. So signing deals more than 10 years or signing them 20 years from a security perspective makes a, a lot of sense. But from a policy perspective, there they, I think there continues to be some some reluctance that, you know, that's that's an advisable move. On top of that, there's also the issue of how much surplus LNG there's going to be through the end of the decade. And you know, that's something you and I talked about during Sierra Week in Houston, and, and it's not going to go away. At the end of the day, we have no idea if and when and how much your Russian gas is going to come back into the market. So you're sitting on a market that has 15 billion cubic feet a day, let's call it, or 150 BCM a year of Russian gas that's literally sitting off of the, the market right now. And that has spurred a tremendous amount of new investments in new LNG supply. But if that comes back into the market, we're looking at a potentially seriously soft market in the second half of this decade. That's not to say it's not going to be relatively tight over the next, you know, 12 to 36 months. But then after that, the picture really, really changes drastically. Mm-hmm. Well, so speaking of, of soft markets, you talked about uh, European Union storage outlooks just a little bit ago. And I've been checking the numbers this week. Storage was around 56% full most of the week. And it looks like the region might in winter with storage at record highs. I know that my colleague, Jameson Coughlin, has talked to you a little bit about this for a piece that published this week. But what do you think those high storage levels mean for LNG demand to Europe this summer? I mean, I think it's going to be strong. I, I, I think there was an aspect of the market that was really trying to talk up a really strong recovery in Chinese demand, which we certainly haven't seen yet. If we do see a strong recovery in Chinese demand, It's going to be in the second half of the year, and it's going to be if prices are a lot lower than they are now. Year-on-year buying in last year was down 15 million tons, so you'd have to have another 15 million tons, you know, that's around 20 BCM, let's say, and then on top of that, that growth to really sort of tighten up the market. We haven't really seen any evidence of that yet. In fact, LNG prices within China itself have been dropping. So, you know, I do expect more of kind of a supply push into into the European market during storage season rather than a demand pull for several reasons. One is I'm not totally buying this China is going to come right back into the market story. Two, Brazil hydro levels are the highest we've ever seen as in ever, or at least recorded ever that I have in the data, which goes back, you know, over 20 years. And so year on year, if they buy no or little LNG, again, that's another sort of 15 to 20 BCM of LNG that will not be bought by by a buyer that was buying it last year. So that kicks a lot more into the market. And then on top of that, you're going to have another 20 BCM 
Freeport LNG, which was, well, we'll call it half, half of that, but in BCM, but they, they got knocked out in early June of last year. And now they're totally back kicking out a significant amount of LNG. Now the flip side of that is Nord Stream. Uh, what was left of Nord Stream, we lose what, incrementally year on year what was what was coming from Russian gas as it was slowly taken off the market last year, first through Ukraine and then through the Nord Stream pipelines and then the total disruption because of the pipeline disruption. So on balance, you have these basically four pillars of giant demand and supply swings. So whether China comes back, the Brazilian volumes more or less equal the Chinese volumes. Freeport coming back more or less equals the loss of Nord Stream volumes. So on a net-net basis, I, I do expect more of an LNG supply push into, into Europe than more of a demand pull or, or demand from otherwhere. As I said, again, prices are still $13 per million BTU. If prices were down to seven or six, this would be an entirely different discussion. Gotcha. I want to uh, kind of seize on one of the things you said about China. So it, it sounds like that you believe China will continue to withhold from the, the spot market. What do you see driving that? Is it their their long term contracts, pipeline gas? I mean, they definitely have more under contract. So you know, the volume they have under contract is building, but on a total supply basis, you're just taking gas that was spot and now is contract. But Anyway, they, they definitely are buying more under contract, but again, prices are still very, very high. So I certainly never look at uh, China or India as an aggressive spot buyer unless the prices make sense. And, and if these numbers, prices don't make sense. And I would expect prices to go down. Even within the Chinese press and, and some of the, the Chinese state buyers, they have been you know very, very cautious to say, and obviously, if they're the buyer, they don't want to talk their book here and act like they're short anyway. But they you know, are talking a very conservative book about how much incremental LNG they're going to buy this year versus last year. Because essentially what happened last year is they diverted a huge amount of LNG and they burned a lot more coal. And that is basically how the world balanced the Russian invasion of Ukraine is by sending more gas to Europe at a very high price and burning a lot more coal in Asia at the, on the aggregate level here. So those those are all things. I also should throw in the, the, the hydro story in, in Europe is very important. You know, there, there, there seems to be a lot of corrosion issues with a lot of the nuclear plants in France. And while production and capacity are a lot higher this year right now than they were last year at the bottom, that's also something that's very, very important to look at go for during injection season. Water levels in hydro are also going to be very low in, in France this year. So on that level, you know, that's where we could see some sort of cracks in terms of stronger demand growth or a stronger pull into the market in Europe later this year. Gotcha. And, you know, I've seen some financial institutions like Goldman Sachs actually raise their um, expectations for TTF near late summer, in, in part because they, they apparently see a scenario where low gas prices or encouraged coal to gas switching may incentivize consumption in the power sector, or you might see more manufacturers possibly increasing demand right as countries are filling storage. Do you see any chances of, of those scenarios playing out? I mean, yeah. I mean, I didn't read the Goldman Sachs report, but if, you, if you're telling me prices are going to go down to very low levels, you'll definitely have demand recovery in industry and you'll have, well, what's left of coal to gas switching, you know, in, in Europe. And then plus the three German reactors are also scheduled to be shut down as well. So between the hydro loss, potential nuclear loss, from France and and from Germany, yeah, the power sector, you know, is is going to be the strongest anchor potentially of the market in Europe. And but again, if prices are high, 
the continent showed some really strong discipline last year in terms of reserving demand, in terms of conservation, in terms of efficiency gains. So it's definitely stronger. But here we're talking, we're already talking about a scenario where prices are much lower than they are right now. At these kind of levels, I just, I just don't see it unless, you know, we have other serious issues that emerge either involving changes in Russian behavior or, or loss of supply, or again, a very, very strong outlook within the power sector, which, which does need to be looked at. Mm -hmm. So going back a little bit, I do always enjoy a reference to both Freeport and Nord, Nord Stream in the same <laughs> comment. Same uh, Freeport, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Freeport was a big story last year. It's still kind of a big story this year. What do you think about the possibilities of there being maintenance scheduled or otherwise that could limit a repeat of the U.S. surge of LNG? Because we, we have some scheduled maintenance this year, but these LNG terminals, especially in the Gulf Coast, have been running full bore for quite a while now. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. And I'm glad you raised it because I forgot to. It, it, maintenance is another potential bullish factor out there. You know, if we were to cut, I mean, current send out, I think is probably, what is it, like 13, 14 now? Is it that high? Mm -hmm. I'm not yeah. even sure. That would cut it down to sort of 10 or 11 at times or even less is definitely something to look at. And so, you know, keeping your LNG maintenance schedule up, not just for the US, but, you know, for Australia, Qatar and everywhere else, COVID, even though we're somewhat past it now, you know, deferred a lot of maintenance in a lot of places around the world. So, which may have led to some cracks in the system before, but it, it does need to be done. And, and it is a good point. Typically maintenance will occur, you know, during the second quarter. That's the sort of low point for, for gas demand based on, you know, LNG movements around the world. So, but you're right. That is definitely something to, to look at and, and to think about as well. But again, like I can't emphasize enough, you know, you're talking about 40, having to inject 40 BCM less into European storage than the year before. I mean, full European storage, depending on how you measure it, is going to be somewhere around 105 BCM, 110 maybe. Highest like I've ever seen in the numbers is 105, but evidently there, there's more out there. So that's not a lot of injections compared to normal and certainly compared to last year. So you know, the amount of supply needed, you know, assuming and demand never really gets that high in Europe during the summer, even if we were to have some sort of power related issue, that's a lot less gas that has to be injected into European storage, you know, over the summer months. Mm -hmm. And so this question, a little bit off of our, our topic, but I wanted to make sure to ask you, because I, I remember me and you talked kind of extensively about Cutter, whenever um, I, I interviewed mm -hmm. you not too long ago about that, that insightful piece that you wrote about the future of LNG contracting. And since we, we just got the news that uh, Sinopec is making an, an equity stake in the North Philadelphia project, we'll become the first Asian firm to do so, the first state-owned Chinese firm to do so. I, what do you think about what seems to be the tightening of China and Qatar's relationship and what that means for supply of other regions? You know, it's part of the balance of the way they look at things. I mean, let's not forget they've already signed up and I'm, I'm forgetting the names of the exact companies, probably three or four of these equity deals or partnership deals with Western companies so far. So this is the first one in Asia. This is the first Chinese one. Obviously, it's very important. PetroChina is going to be a very you know, large buyer of LNG in the future. So, you know, it's important. I don't know how big, did they say how big the equity stake was? 5%. So 5%. So 5% of, I think it's a little over 30 million tons a year of, of, of the NFE capacity. So, you know, you're talking about 530. So like around a million and a half tons of, you know, that's, that's off the market, but they still have a massive amount of LNG to sell, you know, that's completely, completely unsigned. So 
the Qataris are, you know, moving ahead with this capacity. And other than a Sinopec contract, this PetroChina equity deal and the Conoco contract, most of their new LNG coming to the market, whether it's from Qatar or the 70% that they're going to be marketing from Golden Pass of, of the total volume, it's not signed to anyone right now. We're going to do peace for this for at the Center on Global Energy Policy that hopefully will appear in the in the ne- in the next week or so, something to to look out for about about how how wide the gap is between the amount of capacity they're adding and how much of their volume is under contract. So, I think this is really an important first step for them in terms of you know gaining market share with this unsold capacity. And it'd be really interesting if they continue going down the equity path here, because that would I, I think be significantly different than them even signing long term deals with non equity buyers. I think it's uh, obviously when you become that level of integrated. There's certainly no price exposure out, out, out there, but also it, it, you know, it really shows a lot of confidence between the buyers and the sellers. Gotcha. Well, with that, I think we've, we've reached the end of another episode of the NGI's Hub and Flow podcast. And I would like to thank Ira so much for joining us. And I encourage everyone to uh, follow his upcoming research and to follow him on Twitter because it's always, always a fun read. As always, you can find more episodes of the NGI podcast wherever fine podcasts are hosted and follow LNG and North American Natural Gas Market News at naturalgasintel.com. Thanks and have a wonderful day, everyone. Dependable data drives informed business decisions. Trust NGI to provide your natural gas and LNG data for North America. If your business requires daily, weekly, or midweek pricing data, forward curves, or flow data, NGI has a reliable product suite to support you. Visit natgasintel.com backslash services to understand what we have to offer and how we can help you and your business today. Thank you for listening to NGI's Hub and Flow podcast today. We encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it, and please do share it with your colleagues. A trusted provider of natural gas news, data, and pricing information for North America, NGI offers subscription-based products. Please visit natgasintel.com if you are interested in NGI and our services. If you would like to dive deeper into this subject, additional resources are available on our website as well. Just visit natgasintel.com and click on the resources tab to find the podcast page.